Welcome to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. This is episode six. This is episode six. And this is the podcast where we talk about everything about James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. I'm Dermot. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to start out with a little bit of an intro today before we get into our main topic. First of all, if you, for some reason, haven't listened to the last episode of our podcast, episode five, which was an interview with two volunteers from Sweeney's Pharmacy. We also have a full <laughs> video of the interview up on YouTube, and uh, I spent a lot of time working on it, so it'll give you a, a great feel for the place. Very hard to convey it on uh, just the audio alone. Yep, so make sure you watch that. And I also wanted to take this time now to answer a question that came up in our Facebook group, which is, if, you go, if you're on Facebook and you want to join the group, search out Blooms and Barnacles podcast, it'll come right up. And someone asked us to talk a little bit about the format of the podcast. And this particular person is a big fan of Frank Delaney's podcast, Rejoice, which if somehow you are into both podcasting and Joyce and you haven't listened to Rejoice, you definitely should. So Frank Delaney takes every single line of the book and breaks it down and explains it. And it's a really great podcast and the episodes range between like seven and 20 minutes. So it's nice and bite-sized. I want to say, first of all, that we, we are not Frank Delaney. I'm not. I'm certainly not. His podcast is fantastic, but that's definitely not what we're aiming for here. I, I started this podcast because I helped host a book club about Ulysses, and I really liked having a group of people to talk to every week about Ulysses. And I wanted to take that same energy and turn it into the into a podcast. So really what we're setting out to do is not to analyze every corner of Ulysses, because first of all, Frank Delaney's already done that. And I don't think I could ever equal Frank Delaney. And second of all, we're aiming for a much more discussion-based podcast. It's not a lecture. So we're like sitting around the table chatting about yeah. the book. Or, yeah, a little more. A little, yeah. We're more like, uh, we're not like professional actors or literary theorists or right. anything of the sort. We're journalists like Delaney. We're just people who are excited about literature and Irish culture and Dublin in particular. And we want to share that enthusiasm and really just create a, a fun, casual atmosphere where it's okay for people who aren't professors to talk about Joyce. So we'll have a, a lot of discussions between me and Dermot, and then every so often we will sprinkle in an interview. The amount of in interviews we have on the podcast are going to match the amount of people who want to be interviewed by us. So... Don't be afraid to engage. Send an yeah. email. Or we love leave, to talk to you. Leave a message on the Facebook group mm -hmm. or, you know, don't bite. Introduce us to your friend David Norris, who yeah, is Dermot yeah. is. We're trying to get a hold of David Norris. That'd be if anyone knows David Norris, and you know, we want to mm -hmm. have a chat with David. <laughs> okay, I think that covers that. Yep. So the section we're discussing today is from Telemachus, the first episode of Ulysses, and if you're following along at home, it starts on page thirteen, and we're going to talk about the encounter of the boys in the tower. Stephen Haynes and Buck Mulligan with the old milkwoman. Mm. Old Granny Grogan. Well, she's not Granny Grogan. We'll she's get not? To that. She's not, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so Dermot is going to read the first section, and we'll talk about it. I'm melting, he said, as the candle remarked when. But hush, not a word more on that subject. Kinch, wake up. Bread, butter, honey. Haynes, come in. The grub is ready. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Where's the sugar? Ah, oh, Jay, there's no milk. Stephen fetched the loaf and the pot of honey and the butter cooler from the locker. Buck Mulligan sat down in a sudden pet. What sort of a kip is this? He said. 
I told her to come after eight. We could drink it black, Stephen said. There's a lemon in the locker. Oh, damn you and your Paris fads, Buck Mulligan said. I want Sandy Cove milk. Haynes came in from the doorway and said quietly, That woman is coming up with the milk. The blessings of God on you, Buck Mulligan, cried, jumping up from his chair. Sit down. Pour out the tea there. The sugar is in the bag. Here, I can't go fumbling at the damned eggs. He hacked to the fry on the dish and slapped it out on three plates, saying, In nomine patris et fili et spiritus sancti. Haynes sat down to pour out the tea. I'm giving you two lumps each, he said. But I say, Mulligan, you do make strong tea, don't you? All right, Dermot, so I'm going to call on you as an Irish person to give us some wisdom. First of all... God help you. <laughs> what? God help you. Uh, first of all, I want to ask you about some Hiberno-English in here. Oh, yes. Yeah. Hiberno-English means the English that's spoken in Ireland. It's different from some other forms of English. Correct. So, first of all, um, Buck Mulligan says, Oh, Jay, there's no milk. Who's Jay? Jesus. <laughs> okay, thank you. And then I want to ask you about this. Buck Mulligan sat down in a sudden pet. Is that a phrase that you pet. would use? I, that sounds vaguely familiar. I might have heard it a few times. It sounds like, like maybe a hoof. Uh, it's the kind of weird little word. Like, there was one uh, that I was familiar growing up with. Somebody say it's cat. Uh, meaning it's all messed up or something mm -hmm. to that effect. So yeah, we have all these bizarre uses of English words that have no apparent explanation. Mm -hmm. And then one that you got excited about earlier in the week is the word kip, yeah. as in what sort of kip is this? I told her to come after eight. Yeah, I think it's just a, a dump. And that's a word that we would have used all the time growing up. This is the right kip. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's a great word because it just describes, I, I don't know if it's a contraction of a skip or what, but... Uh, kip was a, it's a commonplace word when uh, I was growing up, well, anyway. Knowing it's a contraction of skip doesn't help me at all. Like a rubbish skip. I don't know what I that means. Like I've a skip, never... like a dumpster? I've never heard I mean. that. Okay, well, maybe so... I'm imagining things. No, or it's just an Irish expression, and you're, yeah. you're um, it could be, it could educating have roots, us. It could have roots in an Irish word. Who knows? There are books yeah. written about Hiberno-English. You go on Amazon and do a book right. search, you'll find them. They're great fun. Yeah, and there are lots of theories about the origins of Hiberno-English. Mm. But really, the reason you're here, other than living in the same house as me, you are an expert on tea. Tea, yes. Yeah. Ever since you moved in, your tea consumption has gone up by about 700%. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, well, you will march around the house and you'll offer me tea. Yeah, and I'm then... not offering, I'm telling you to drink tea. <laughs> and then you walk away going, this is an Irish house, we drink tea. <laughs> Correct. Okay, so obviously this is important to your people. Yeah. Yeah, part what? of our cultural heritage, okay. going back thousands of years. So tell us some things about tea. Uh, well, we were watching an Irish uh, comedy show set in the late 80s, early 90s called Bridget and Eamon. Oh and there's a scene in it where Eamon starts drinking coffee and Bridget's afraid that he's getting airs and graces and he might be turning into a Protestant or a middle class. <laughs> and then I realized it is kind of funny because in America, uh, coffee is the, the working class man, the working man's drink. And tea is the fancy frou-frou drink. But in Ireland, at least until very recently, it was the other way around. Everyone drank tea and coffee was sort of the fancier hot drink and certainly is now with all their espressos and Americanos and what have mm -hmm. you. Um, so, yeah, in, in America and uh, yeah, Ireland, uh, Britain, too, uh, it's flipped. You know, it makes you realize how, how arbitrary some of these uh, snob, sure. snob attitudes towards drinks are. But in the text, of course, we see the little snob attitude towards, you know, we're not having tea with a lemon in it any of these fancy French ways. Thank you very much. Do you like that? 
Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Dermot. Well, let's move on to the next section. And I'd like you to read again. Okay. Book Mulligan, hewing thick slices from the loaf, said in an old woman's wheedling voice, When I makes tea, I makes tea, as old Mother Grogan said. And when I makes water, I makes water. By Jove, it is tea, Haynes said. Book Mulligan went on hewing and wheedling. So I do, Mrs. Cahill, says she. Be God, ma'am, says Mrs. Cahill. God send you. Don't make them in the one pot. Thank you. Can I, can, so let's return to our Hiberno English. Mm -hmm. Begob, is that a, a word you've ever used in your life? Uh, not me, but I, you know, it's a word, yeah, begob. But it's, it's kind of a hokey uh, stage Irishism. Mm. Uh, there might be people out there who use it. I've never heard that used in, uh, by anybody, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think here in a lot of places where it pops up in Ulysses, it's being used to parody, mm -hmm. like a simple Irish person. Yeah, some rural simpleton, which a, is a culture. As they might be known. And what is it, Colchi? Uh, anybody outside of Dublin, and that would include me. If you're out, outside of Dublin, you're a Colchi, according to a Dubliner. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's Dublin and everybody else. That's the okay. differentiation. And what does the phrase, when I makes water, I makes water mean? I'm assuming uh, urination. Yeah, it means <laughs> she's going pee. Okay. And don't, don't make the urination and the tea in the same pot. Yes. Yeah, a simple country yokel might. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so this mention of Mother Grogan, if you've read Ulysses through, she pops up a couple of times. Mother Grogan comes from a folk song, an anonymous folk song by the name of Ned Grogan. Now, there is relatively little information on that. If you check our episode notes, I've linked to a book that has the full lyrics in it, but I have been totally unable to find music for it because I think it's mostly a forgotten folk song. I even asked a friend of ours who plays Irish folk music if he'd heard of it and he never had. If you have heard or know the music to Ned Grogan, I would love to hear it, send it our way. But here is the first verse of Ned Grogan. Ned Grogan, dear joy, was the son of his mother, and as like her, it seems, as one pea to another. But to find out his dad, he was put to the rout, as many folks wiser have been, joy, no doubt. To this broth of a boy, oft his mother would say, when the moon shines, my jewel, be making your hay. Always ask my advice when the business is done, for two heads sure you'll own are much better than one. So basically she's saying, when the moon shines on you, go find a lady and do what comes naturally to you. And then come tell me about it when you're done. That's and I'll, we'll, we'll uh, you know, decide your next plan of action. There's nothing Freudian about it. <laughs> so the rest of the song is uh, Ned Grogan getting himself into various troubles with women and then his mother giving him advice. So Mother Grogan is a very practical woman. And she's very frank about her son's sexuality and sexuality in general. So she's used here by Mulligan as sort of a, a simple old Irish woman. When I makes tea, I makes tea. And when I makes water, I makes water. So, but also very practical and nonsensical. So that's what that means when you see Mother Grogan. And she'll pop up again. We'll talk about her again. Good. We'll leave her there for now. One interpretation of this too is, this is from the Bloomsday book by Harry Blumeyers. And he says that this line that's creating a connection between making tea and urinating. Ur urination is a symbol of fertility and creativity, and that's adding a connection between that symbolism and that tea has the same properties, perhaps. I wouldn't have associated piss with... <laughs> <laughs> Although, I guess it's plenty of nitrogen, mm -hmm. so you, know, you can water your plants with it if you're not you know, too extreme. All right, I think that would kill your plants. So. Uh, a little bit is fine. 
All right, let's move forward. <laughs> and let's move on now to the Mabinogian Upanishads and Marianne. That's folk, he said very earnestly. For your book, Haynes. Five lines of text and ten pages of notes about the folk and the fish gods of Dundrum, printed by the Weird Sisters in the Year of the Big Wind. He turned to Stephen and asked in a fine, puzzled voice, lifting his brows. Can you recall, brother, is Mother Grogan's tea and water pot spoken of in the Mabinogion, or is it in the Upanishads? I doubt it, said Stephen gravely. Do you now, Buck Mulligan said in the same tone. Your reasons, pray. I fancy, Stephen said as he ate. It did not exist in or out of the Mabinogion. Mother Grogan was, one imagines, a kinswoman of Mary Ann. Thank you, Dermot. Okay, so let's talk about what that means. First of all, let's define some of these big words. What is the Mabinogion? It's a very old book of Welsh mythology, and to the best of my knowledge, the only surviving book of Welsh mythology. And I've actually read it, mm -hmm. and I can't remember any of it. I read it about 25 years ago, and I'm drawing a total blank. But there was a really great poster, which I'm trying to find. Uh, we used to have a copy of it, and it's if you do a search for Mabinogi on poster, you'll see little photographs, low resolution online. If anybody out there has this poster, <laughs> knows how to find this poster, please email We're us. We're really making a lot of demands of our audience I today. want the poster. And do you know what the Upanishads are? Uh, the Indian uh, epics. <laughs> that Indian the, thing. Uh, yes, the big the one. Earliest, no one... The earliest Hindu writings. Yeah, like the Rig Veda and the Mahabharata mm -hmm. and all that, yeah. Yeah, so this whole little thing here is aimed at Haynes, and Haynes is the English Oxford student who's staying with Buck Mulligan and Stephen in the Martello Tower, and he is so fascinated with Irish culture that he is writing down all these fun little sayings and stories that he hears during his time in Ireland so that he, he can save them and remember the ways of the Irish people. So Buck Mulligan's kind of making a joke about that here, that's folk for your book, Haynes. And then he kind of, he always kind of talks to, to Haynes about Irish people the way, you know, you might hear in a, a nature documentary. Printed by the Weird Sisters in the Year of the Wind. What does that mean? So, suggesting that in, um, the, the, whoever wrote the song Ned Grogan is, must have been printed by some sort of mythical creatures in the Year of the Big Wind because they don't use numbers for years like oh, civilized okay. folk. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's what that whole paragraph's kind of aiming at. And they're teasing Haynes a bit because of his obsession with Ireland. I think what we, kids would call it nowadays is cultural appropriation. Oh, these kids with their words. Yeah, but you know, it's sometimes adults with their words too. But basically that Haynes comes from England, who are the historic oppressors of Ireland, and he's just so taken with these sort of superficial visions of Irish folk culture and but without ever really acknowledging the the pain and suffering the British have caused mm, yeah. Ireland over the years. So yeah. He says later in this very chapter, I suppose history is to blame. <laughs> the passive It must history. be history. <laughs> it's not like people who did things. The use of these two great collections of ancient stories that come from Wales and India, these are both British subjects like Ireland. Right. And while they are considered these great works of religion and folklore, Irish folk writings don't enjoy the same high status. You have people like Haynes coming over and kind of treating them like precious oddities. And that's why Stephen doesn't think this is funny. This is a nice little scene too that kind of contrasts Stephen and Mulligan's personalities. Stephen replies gravely. Very and serious. Buck Mulligan's just being an ass yep. uh, over and over. 
And that brings us to Marianne. Buck Mulligan goes on to sing Marianne's song, which goes, For old Marianne, she doesn't care a damn, but hising up her petticoats. And then he crams a bunch of bread in his mouth. <laughs> but the there are, are various ways to finish that verse. The most popular one is, she pisses like a man. So Marianne is body and free with her sexuality. She and Mother Grogan appear early in this as two examples of types of Irish women, practical and motherly, mm -hmm. or body and free. And they both kind of represent, along with the, the joking about the Mabinogian and the Upanishads, the, the low position that Irish culture occupies in Stephen's mind as well as the, the world in general. Stephen admires the culture of continental Europe, France in particular, as shown with his his fancy lemon. His fancy lemon and his uh, his Latin Quarter hat that gets mentioned yeah. later on. He's not a good young Irishman. And now, the milkwoman cometh. So, the milkwoman does show up at this point. She comes in the door. Let's see here. The, the doorway was darkened by an entering form. The milk, sir, come in, ma'am, Stephen said. Kinch, get the jug. And that's why we usually have Dermot read, because he's... He's a way better reader than me. So to state this simply, the milkwoman is usually seen as symbolizing Ireland's past and backwards-looking culture because that's Stephen's view of it. Stephen is on, on the brink of probably leaving Ireland forever because that's what James Joyce did in 1904 and Stephen's life in many ways follows his path. And this simple milkwoman, who seems really very sweet and polite, she's an early harbinger of that thought in Stephen's mind. So let's look at the ways in which she symbolizes Ireland. So she replies to Mulligan's good mornings with, That's a lovely morning, sir, she said. Glory be to God. To which Buck Mulligan replies, To whom, Mulligan said, glancing at her. Ah, to be sure. Stephen reached back and took the milk jug from the locker. I'll take that again. Here, actually, I will pause you because I thought it went right into the thing I wanted you to read. Um, you can skip that and just the okay. Islanders. Okay. The Islanders. Mulligan said to Haynes casually, speak frequently of the collector of prepuces. Do you know what a prepuce is? Yes, I do. What is it? It's a foreskin. Oh, that's why you're the best. <laughs> it is. So um, Mulligan is a, sort of explaining the religious culture of Ireland like he's in a nature documentary they, to think Haynes. David Attenborough. Yes. Yeah. The, uh, look at the Irish as they bring this simple milk jug to the town. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so speak <laughs> the collector of prepuces being Jehovah. God the Father. Yes, the Old Testament God. Yes. And this shows us her glory be to God. Shows us that she is pious. The simple Irish folk are pious. They believe in God and reference his name frequently. In Irish too, like Gia did, God be with you, and yeah. Gia Ismeridit, and also mm -hmm. with you, is baked mm -hmm. into hello, how are you? Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. Well, um, save, now save your, your Irish because we get to that eventually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's it. I'm afraid I've used it up. <laughs> All right, the next line here. He watched her pour into the measure and thence into the jug rich white milk, not hers, old shrunken paps. This is Stephen watching the woman measure out their milk and sell them. Because this old woman, although she sells milk, she is unable to nourish people directly with her own milk, as symbolized by her withered body. And this is how Stephen sees Ireland, too. This Ireland, his motherland, is unable to nourish him with the intellectual mother's milk mm. that he requires to flourish as an artist and intellectual. Precious of him. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. And the act, there's all tradition of like personifying Ireland as a woman, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeats does it in Kathleen Nihulahan yes. a few years earlier. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's actually, that name will uh, 
pop up in this book too. Okay. But I have a feeling that Yeats's personification is maybe more. Oh God. <laughs> Yeatsian. Started. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm jumping around here, so I'll just read it myself because I skip a couple lines here. This is also describing the milkwoman, old and secret. She had entered from a morning world, maybe a messenger. She praised the goodness of the milk, pouring it out. Crouching by a patient cow at daybreak in the lush field, a witch on her toadstool, her wrinkled fingers quick at the squirting dugs. They lowed about her whom they knew, dew silky cattle, silk of the kine, and poor old woman, names given her in old times. So this description of the old woman is Stephen's imagination of how she spent her morning before coming out to the tower around eight. It really emphasizes her earthiness and perhaps even the witchy quality of old Irish women. Mm -hmm. It kind of fits in with the, the weird sisters who've printed Ned Grogan in the Year of the Wind. <laughs> and there's also a bit of Homeric language in here as well. I don't want to talk too much about Homer in this episode because we've already done that. That's our second episode that we recorded called, I think, this has the word Telemachus in the title. You'll, you'll find it in the stream. There's only six episodes. But the messenger, maybe a messenger. In the early part of the Odyssey, Telemachus is sort of losing hope of ever getting away from all the suitors in Ithaca to find his father when he meets Mentor on the beach, who is a person, a man, who tends out, who turns out to be a disguised Athena, who kind of gives him a pep talk and then he set sail for adventure. Hmm. And in the Gilbert schema, Joyce parallels the old woman with Mentor, and I always thought they could not play a more different role. But I suppose this is the way in which she nourishes Stephen and sends him forth, is by giving him some milk for his tea. And there's also this phrase, silk of the kine, spelled K-I-N-E. Do you know what a kine is? No idea. Oh, great. It's an archaic word for cattle. And you'll see it used, I think, I don't know about exclusively, but, but often in the Odyssey with reference to the kind of Helios, who are more commonly known as, especially if you are a Ulysses reader, as the oxen of the sun, which are the sun god's oxen that Odysseus's men slay and then all hell breaks loose for them. That goes very poorly. So let's continue reading this description of her. The next part of that paragraph says, A wandering crone, lowly form of an immortal, serving her conqueror and her gay betrayer, their common cuck queen, a messenger from the secret morning, again a messenger, to serve or to upbraid, whether he could not tell, but scorned to beg her favor. So this is a lot of stuff that Stephen is kind of projecting onto this old milkwoman. Poor old woman. Next vocabulary word, what is a cuck queen? I'm guessing it's a female version of a of a soy boy beta cook. <laughs> Can we rephrase that? that? I don't want that in my podcast. <laughs> I, I'm assuming it's a female version of a cuckold. It is, yeah. yeah. So, and a cuckold being? A chap, like uh, a, a man who has been cheated upon. His mm -hmm. wife has been unfaithful. Yeah. So her, I suppose her, her manly consort, which I guess is also Ireland. Mm. is cheating on her with the conqueror and the ba and the gay betrayer. The conqueror being? Haynes. Sure, Haynes, the invading foreigner mm. who is personifying the English in this passage. Yes. Obsessed with tea and belittling the Irish. And her gay betrayer would be? Uh, I'm guessing Buck Mulligan. Buck Mulligan, mm. the wealthy class of Ireland is what he represents. Right. That they are all too happy, those who have all the money and power in Ireland itself, to behave like Englishmen, 
maybe even speak like Englishmen, and worse yet, to be friends with, aid and abet the Englishmen. How dare they? That's what Stephen's thinking as this is all going down. <laughs> okay, let's keep reading. Who's speaking in this? This is Buck Mulligan. Okay. If we could only live on good food like that, he said to her somewhat loudly, we wouldn't have the country full of rotten teeth and rotten guts. Living in a bog swamp, eating cheap food, and the streets paved with dust, hearthstone, and consumptive spits. If only. So part of this too, I noticed that Mulligan does have rotten teeth because he has gold caps on his teeth. Mm. And also, all Ireland needs is some good fresh milk to solve all of its problems. Uh, antibiotics would help too. But yeah. I read recently somewhere that said Mulligan's Hellenization is abhorrent to Stephen because it's a sort of a, a band-aid mm -hmm. that um, treats the symptoms of Ireland's problems whether than, rather than striking at the root of the problems. Right. And I think this is a good example of, of, of that. Yeah, something entirely symbolic instead of a material action. Mm -hmm. I also feel like even though Mulligan's technically complimenting her, this has always felt kind of condescending to me mm -hmm. because the people he's describing might be people that the old woman spends time with. Yeah, people couldn't help being in poverty. It wasn't their fault. Mm -hmm. If only they, they had some good clean Sandy Cove milk. Yes. And also the money of but Mulligan's it's, family. It's a bit like the stuff today where people blame poor people for eating junk food. Like they mm -hmm. can't afford anything else. Of course, you mm -hmm. know, it's going to go to the very bottom of their barrel. They've got, you've got $10 to spend in a day. Of course, you're going to go to McDonald's. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to get the cheapest food you can, especially if you live in the food desert. And then you blame the victim. So mm -hmm. there's a bit of that going on here. All right, good. Get your ire up. You'll, yep. you'll, you'll uh, resonate with Stephen Dedalus better. All right, next up. Are you a medical student, sir? The old woman asked. I am, ma'am, Buck Mulligan answered. Stephen listened in scornful silence. She bows her old head to a voice that speaks to her loudly. Her bones said her, her medicine man. Me, she slights. And this is the woman's greatest sin of all. She acknowledges the medical student, but ignores the artist, capital A artist, <laughs> in her midst, which is Stephen. Let's be real. Yeah. A lot of the problems he has with Buck Mulligan is, is ego-driven because he thinks of himself just as great as everybody else thinks Buck Mulligan is, mm -hmm. but... Even though he's how old? 20? Yeah, 20. Yeah, he's 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I think Mulligan's a couple years older. Mm -hmm. At least that's the relative ages of Joyce and Gogarty. Her gay betrayer. <laughs> okay, next. Do you understand what he says? Stephen asked her. Is it French you're talking, sir? The old woman said to Haynes. Haynes spoke to her again a longer speech, confidently. Irish. Buck Mulligan said. Is there Gaelic on you? I thought it was Irish, she said, by the sound of it. Are you from the West, sir? I am an Englishman, Haynes answered. He's English, Buck Mulligan said, and he thinks we ought to speak Irish in Ireland. Sure we ought to, the old woman said, and I'm ashamed I don't speak the language myself. I'm told it's a grand language by them that knows. Grand is no name for it, said Buck Mulligan. Wonderful, entirely. Thank you, Dermot. So I want to, I, before I say what I, I wrote down and say about this, I want to know what you goes through your head when you read this, because I know you had an experience learning Irish in school. Mm -hmm. the, the Irish language is compulsory in Irish schools as a result of which nobody can speak it. Uh, we learn it from the age of four and it's taught very badly. I don't know if it's improved since I left. I went, began school in the 70s, uh, left in the mid 80s. It was uh, basically taught by almost by rote. It, it was not taught like a living language. Most Irish people have what they call the cupola focal, the couple of words, and that's about it. To, to find like actual true speakers, you have to go to the ever decreasing Gaeltacht areas 
Um, What's Gail talked to mean? The Gail talked are the um, small areas, pockets, uh, mostly out toward the west of the country, mm-hmm. um, where supposedly Irish is the, you know, the primary language still in use. But actually, the sad truth is even there now. I've read that the the language is now beginning to be replaced by English a lot of mm-hmm. for a lot of transactions. So we have TG three, um, I think, or TG four. TG Cahir. Cahir is the yeah. Irish language station. And they have a lot of really good shows Which on means it. Which means TG4. So <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if a lot of the um, new people who've immigrated to Ireland would be better Irish speakers than the, the, many of the natives because maybe they, they take a greater interest in it. But we, we, because it was so badly taught, a lot of Irish people have a genuine hatred for, for the language, mm-hmm. which is a sad thing. And which a, I think is something that's changing. Yeah, I hope so. I think with the younger generations, more and more people are going to Irish language immersion schools yeah. and yeah. are looking for ways to use it out, outside of school and not just yeah. for their exams. They're and, called Gwail Scolina and yeah, uh, which like Irish language Irish schools. language school. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah, which there are other books and podcasts you can listen to on that topic if you're interested in it. Don't want to get too far down that mm-hmm. rabbit hole. But I, yeah, for full disclosure, I'm quite interested in the Irish language. And when I first met Dermot, he was very skeptical <laughs> of that. So um, he was actually really nice about it. Just <laughs> but what this says about Ireland and the, the woman who's representing Ireland in this allegory is that she's ignorant of her own culture that she reveres the Irish language. I'm told it's grand by those who speak it, and I'm ashamed I don't speak the language myself. And she re- thinks it's French at first, mm. you know, not mm. even recognizing it as ir- Irish, which sounds very different from French. Phonetically, yeah. Yeah, showing her lack of education. And it's an Englishman who's speaking back to her in the language that the English took from the Irish. Mm-hmm which is Irish Gaelic, or Irish for short. Yeah, my notes here say, an Englishman encourages her to reclaim the culture the English took from her people, which Buck Mulligan finds fairly amusing. Mm -hmm. And Stephen, I think, is kind of disgusted by. And Stephen doesn't speak Irish. Joyce, for his part, and for all the languages that he learned, never really learned Irish. He he tried a little bit. He actually took Irish lessons from Patrick Pierce. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Pierce being the leader of the 1916 Rising. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, there's one little bit of uh, Hiberno-English in here as well. Is there Gaelic on you? You want to comment on that? Yeah, that's an actual literal translation of the way you would describe a thing in Irish. So mm-hmm. you would you would not say, to, to translate it into English, you would not say, I am hungry. You would say, there is hunger on me, or uh, there is a happiness on me, um, which is a very different way of constructing that. So that's a literal translation. So the end result is a classic piece of Hiberno English. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is one way that Hiberno English came to be is Mm -hmm. some Irish language expressions turned up in English. Right. Cool. Thanks. Okay, so let's wrap this up. In the end, this sweet old woman who is is simple and pure in her own way is underpaid for her milk by the Tower Boys. Yeah, this makes me angry. Yeah, so they owe her two shillings and two pence and... Buck Mulligan manages to cough up a florin, and a florin is worth two shillings, so she leaves without full payment, and they were already in debt to her. Or milk. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the, you know, the understanding here, too, is that Mulligan comes from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Haynes is an Oxford student, so he's not exactly poor, and it's Stephen who's going to end up paying for all of this from his teaching wages. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit rich. 
resonates. You know, I can I can imagine that people that have money putting on what they call what we call the boor, the the uh, poor mouth, mm. uh, the bail bucht, mm. where they pretend that they don't have anything, but they really do. Yeah, I think they're just kind of taking advantage of Stephen. Like Stephen, God love him, is mm -hmm. a, is not very assertive yeah. when he's being taken advantage of here. I've encountered this directly in my life. Yeah, where people who come from aristocratic backgrounds never have a penny. And they have people much lower down the ladder basically covering for them mm -hmm. for the privilege of hanging out with somebody with a hyphen in their surname. Mm. Yeah. Which Mulligan didn't have. Mm. Well, Mulligan is from the real-life Mulligan, Oliver, Sinjin Gogarty. Sinjin is his middle name. Yeah, well, that's... that's it's also the middle name of Buck Mulligan. Right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, he's a, yeah. a, a fancy pants. He's, he's yeah, a fancy they're, pants. They're well yeah. Off. Yeah, yeah, it's clear enough. So... The milkwoman disappears from Ulysses and then resurfaces again in Circe, which is the surrealistic nightmare <laughs> chapter of Ulysses, my personal favorite. And the horror version of the uh, milkwoman returns as Gummy Granny. Mm -hmm. um, she's ultra-violent and urges Stephen to fight for Ireland. But Stephen, in his drunken stupor, identifies her as the old sow that eats her pharaoh. So I have one more vocabulary word. What's a pharaoh? Uh, I'm guessing it's a young pig. It is, yeah, yeah it's a baby yeah. pig. Which is a line from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is the novel Joyce wrote preceding Ulysses, and it's autobiographical novel about Stephen and also Joyce. And this is a very important quote because it spans both books, and it comes up again and again. And it, it really sums up how Stephen sees Ireland, that Ireland is the old sow that consumes its finest sons, the pharaoh. Artists like Stephen, while it nurtures Philistines like Buck Mulligan, and it nurtures invaders like Haynes, but like the old woman, does not acknowledge artists. Yeah. Ergo, Stephen must leave once and for all. Well, I left in 93 for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a very tough country if you have any kind of a creative field. And again, I think that's changed a yeah. lot, you know, today with the internet and you know all of that. But in '93, it was pretty dire. Mm -hmm. It was a very closed shop. And yeah. I can see why in 1904 it must have been a hundred times worse. Mm -hmm. So many people had to leave. So yeah, I can, I can, I can really empathize with the character, even though I hopefully I, maybe when I was 20, I was probably uncomfortably similar to him. Oh God, of... I was just as horrible as Stephen yeah. when I was 20. I, I do feel uncomfortable how much I relate to him yeah. Yeah. and just think, no, I've changed, I'm changed, I'm, ni <laughs> I'm uh, nice. I'm now. nice now. I really am. <laughs> I pay little old women for their milk. <laughs> mm -hmm. mm. All right. Is that all for now? I think so. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses. And you'll find a new podcast there as well fortnightly. We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles Podcast, on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. 
Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.